Well, team, thank you once again for leading us this morning. Did a great job this morning getting us off to a great start. Well, good morning and happy new year to all of you. How are you doing this morning? You having a good weekend? How are my Michigan State Spartans doing this morning? Yeah? You know, it was a really, really good year. Thursday was not a great night, but it was a really, really good year. How are my Wolverines doing this morning? Yes, yes, your string of not so great seasons has been officially reversed, and you should be really excited about what's to come. And uh, do we have any Ohio State Buckeye fans in the house this morning? We do, we do. This is kind of like honorable mention. Uh, you know, well done with Notre Dame. And uh, if you're an Ohio State fan, I think the rest of us would agree we should probably introduce you to Jesus. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. I'm sure God likes Ohio State. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain about that. Uh, well, hey, however your weekend has been going thus far, uh, so great to be with you, uh, to have this time, to have this space to open up God's Word and to dig in this morning. And I would like to invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 10. So that's where we're going to begin this morning. And if you need a copy of Scripture, our fine ushers are coming down the aisles right now. They're throwing their hands, uh, throw your hands up in the air, they'll get you a copy. We are going to be reading a lot of a story this morning, so I would really encourage you to have uh, a Bible in your hands, either your phone, a tablet, or a physical copy, and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, as Torin mentioned, next week we have Water's Edge Sunday, and then after that, we're going to be kicking off a three-week series entitled Coming Home, and it's going to be on Luke 15, the prodigal son story. We're going to spend a few weeks camping there, which means that this is what we just call an open Sunday, a one-off Sunday. It's not part of a series, and so uh, I decided how much fun would it be to kick off the new year tackling one of the most jacked up, messed up, problematic stories in the Old Testament. So I thought that would be fun. Let's, let's do that. So uh, we're going to do that this morning. And we're going to try to figure out what in the world does this have anything to do with us. So uh, let me just give you a bit of the context of where we're at in the story. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the period of the Judges comes after the Exodus story, after Israel has spent 40 years in the desert, and right after the conquest when Joshua leads them into the land. You have the period of the Judges, and that precedes the period of the monarchy with King Saul, King David, King Solomon. So we're dealing with 1100 BC this morning, about 1100 years before the time of Christ, about 50 years before the time of Saul. And if you know anything about the book of Judges, there is this cycle that happens in the book. And it goes something like this. Israel is in good standing in relationship with God. Then Israel forgets God. They start worshiping other gods. God allows like uh, an oppressor to rise up to subdue the Israelites. The Israelites then cry out in their despair. God hears their cry and raises up a leader who takes out the oppression and then Israel is good with God again and then we start back at the beginning and we just keep going round and round and round. So we're at one of those moments where Israel has been rejecting God and God has allowed a couple of people groups to rise up to wreak havoc over the Israelites. Uh, the two that we're going to be, we're going to be talking about one, but let me just mention the first one that we're told at the beginning of Judges 10 is in the region of Philistia. It's with the Philistines and this becomes a prelude to the Samson narrative. And so 
The guy that we're gonna look at this morning is a judge just a few judges before Samson. So this kind of gives us a heads up about what's to come. Samson will deal with the Philistines. But for our time this morning, we're going to be talking about this group on the east side of the Jordan River in a region called Ammon, known as the Ammonites. And so the Ammonites have risen up and our character today that we're gonna look at is a guy by the name of Jephthah. Now, the Ammonites have this small kind of heartland here, but they're feeling pretty good about themselves. They're trying to expand. And so they're starting to branch out and they've been crossing over the Jordan River and they've been attacking the Israelite tribal inheritances of Ephraim, Benjamin, and Judah. And then more locally with a region that's known as Gilead. Now, we have Israelites living in the region of Gilead because when Israel came into the land, the promised land, when they came through the Jordan River, they came from this east side and two and a half tribes stayed on the east side. You have the half tribe of Manasseh and you have Gad and Reuben. And so here in Gilead, you have the half tribe of Manasseh and you have Gad who are hanging out in this area of Gilead. And then what we have here is that the elders of the Gilead region come together and they meet in a place called Mitzpah. And it's here at Mitzpah where our story is going to pick up this morning. So if you are in Judges chapter 10, come with me to the very end to verse 17. And it reads this way. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mitzpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. So here's what this text basically tells us. They don't have a leader. They have assembled at Mitzpah because they need to address the Ammonite oppression. And yet once they get everybody together, we recognize they don't have a leader. And they say, hey, anybody who's going to rise up and to lead us, we are going to make them a head. In Hebrew, it's this word rosh, literally the head of all the people in Gilead. And that's why they've gathered together because they don't have anybody to lead them. And then the narrator does something helpful, gives us a bit of a backstory. So notice with me verse one of chapter 11. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. Hold on to that phrase, mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. So right away we're told that Jephthah would have been a social outcast. He was an oops. And then we have verse two, Gilead's wife, so Jephthah's father was married or became married. Wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So Jephthah is born to a prostitute, would have made him a social outcast. Apparently is living in his father's household, which would make sense. His father's name is Gilead, which shares the same name as the region. And Gilead is married to a woman and she starts having sons. And at a certain point, those sons say to Jephthah, you are no longer welcome to be part of our family. And their issue is the inheritance. Jephthah is probably the firstborn. That's what it seems to be the, the issue here. And the firstborn got a double portion of the inheritance. And they basically said to Jephthah, you're not really part of our family. You're the son of another woman. What's more, she's a prostitute. We don't want you here. Get out of here. 
Now, if you have been listening with me over the last three years, one of the things that I've said over and over again is that in the ancient world, the two most important things are land and family. To be exiled from your land or to not be able to pass along your family heritage or to be kicked out of your family in any way would constitute the two worst things that could possibly happen to you in the ancient world, far surpassing death. Death was welcomed at this point because it was so ingrained in the cultural world of land and family. And what you begin to recognize here is that Jephthah has had a hard life. I mean, you feel sorry for the guy. He's a a social outcast. And by the way, none of this is of his own doing. He's a social outcast. He gets denied his inheritance. He gets kicked out of his family. And what's more, he gets kicked out of his land. And yet in the midst of all this, we are told up front, he has become a mighty warrior. And so Jephthah, has demonstrated that he can lead a group of people. We're told at the end of that section, he has a a gang of scoundrels that have come around him. Other translations will say a band of mercenaries. Kind of either way you shake it, Jephthah has demonstrated that he attracts people to him and he has an ability to lead those who come and join him. Well, that's gonna become really important to the elders who have gathered at Mitzvah because they're looking for someone to lead them. So now it picks back up in present time with verse four. Sometime later when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Now, do you remember what they originally said at Mitzvah? Anybody who rises up, they'll become what? Head over all the people. Now they're saying commander. That's a different Hebrew word. They're basically saying this person will just now lead the armor. And I wonder if Jephthah hasn't already gotten word of what the assembly at Mitzvah was all about because Jephthah is going to have a little bit of a rebuttal for their request. Notice what he says then in verse seven. Jephthah said to them, "Uh, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? (laughs) I like this. He's got a little spunk here. He's like, oh, now you would like my services. You didn't stand up to me or stand up to my family and they kicked me out. You didn't stand up for me when I got denied my inheritance. You didn't stand up for me when I got kicked out of my land. And now you want to come to me and ask for my help? And you can hear the elders kind of backpedaling ever so slightly. Notice how they respond to Jephthah. The elders of Gilead said to them, nevertheless, i.e., Jephthah, don't worry about the past. It's in the past. You've got your future ahead of us. We are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Oh, oh now they've, they've upped it a little bit. Jephthah, his response is this. Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head The elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mitzvah. So you have this assembly in Mitzvah 
And then we find out that they need a leader. So they go get Jephthah and they trek 45 miles up to Tob, which is where he is residing at this point. They have this conversation. They bring him back to Mitzvah and they establish him as commander and head. And then what Jephthah does next is very, very interesting. He doesn't rush into war. In fact, he goes after a diplomatic solution with the king of the Ammonites. I mean, this is very king-like behavior for Jephthah to respond this way. So Jephthah does this in verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, what do you have against me? Notice the personal language, that you have attacked my country. Again, very king-like in the ancient world to do this, that a front against you is a front against the people and you do this as a collective me. It's my people. It's my country. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? is what Jephthah says to the king of the Ammonites. Well, the messengers come back with this. Verse 13, the king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, when Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Javik, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. So what we find out here, it's a land dispute. I'll show you on a map what the king of Ammon is talking about. He's talking about these two Wadi systems right here. The one in the south is the Arnon and the one in the north is the Jabbok. And what the king of Ammonite is saying to Jephthah is that, hey, when your ancestors, when the Israelites came through to enter into the promised land, they came through this area and they took all of my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok. And Jephthah hears this and he responds back with messengers to the king and he says, hey, uh, I think you have your history a little bit mixed up because that did not happen at all. And Jephthah recounts the correct details from Numbers 20 and 21 to the Ammonite king. And Jephthah basically says, yeah, we came through this area, but we did not take land from you. We took land from the Amorites. And the only reason why we took land from the Amorites is because they attacked us. We had nothing to do with you. We didn't take any of your land. What you are saying is completely false. And this concerns the Israelites because at this time, you have the tribe of Gad and the tribe of Reuben who are residing here. And this is why the Ammonites are creating so much hassle for the Israelites. And Jephthah says to the king, you have no grounds for your argument. Well, as you can imagine, a very egotistical king that would like to expand his territory, he's not going to be too fond of Jephthah's thoughts. So notice what the response is. Chapter 11, come with me all the way down to verse 28. So we've skipped all of the history dialogue that was going on there, and then we have this. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. That's basically a kind way of saying, now we have a war. Then notice verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mitzvah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. Okay, another quick pause here. Review this story with me. Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. He is a social outcast. 
He gets denied his inheritance. He gets kicked out of the family. He gets kicked out of his region. He basically is brought down to the ashes. And then when they're in need, the people come to him and they say, we need you to lead us. And we see that Jephthah rises from the ashes. He enters into a very king-like mode. He starts off with a diplomatic approach. That doesn't go anywhere. And now he enters into war and the spirit of the Lord has come on him. And you go, whoa, this dude has got something going on in his story. Like, look at the trajectory that he is on. And then we hit the first snag. What Jephthah does next would make sense for other kings of other nations to do, but not somebody who is heading up the people who follow God. Notice what he does in verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now, other kings of other nations before a war would consult witches. They would look for omens in the sky, birds. They would look at livers and they have some way of saying, well, this is gonna be favorable or something is not going to be favorable. But what we have here with Jephthah is apparently the spirit of the Lord that is on him isn't enough for Jephthah because Jephthah enters into a vow and not just a vow, but an if-then vow. Jephthah is basically leveraging God to do something on his behalf, which would, which would be normal for other kings of other nations to do because you wanted to get the gods on your side because the gods were angry. They were cranky. They didn't like you. You had to appease their anger in order to get them to do what you wanted them to do. But God has made that un, uh, absolutely known among the people that he doesn't function that way. And yet Jephthah says, if you will do this for me, God, if you'll give me this victory, I'll kill the first thing that walks out of my house. And then the story continues. Verse 32, then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Arior to the vicinity of Manith as far as Abel-Kiramim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. And at this point, everybody's celebrating. Verse 34, when Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzpah, who should come out to meet him? But his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels. She was an only child. Now, this is where we have to go. Okay, Jephthah made a vow, not bright, but the vow itself, that is definitely not very smart. But then you have to ask the question, okay, what... What is, he, what is he operating on? What's the assumption he is working under? And when we understand how homes were constructed in this time period, we start to get a sense for what Jephthah was likely expecting to come out of his house. So here is a uh, picture of the city of Beersheba. It's about 45 miles south, southwest of Jerusalem. And as we zero in on one of the homes, you look at that and you go... Kind of looks like a pile of rocks. Uh, it is, in fact, a pile of rocks. Uh, but let me show you the floor plan of these homes from this time period. The time period is known as the Iron Age. Iron Age 1 is from 1200 to 1000 BC. Jephthah's story is 1100 BC, so we're camped right in the middle of this time period. And this is a typical four-room house from this, from this time period. Uh, and this is what it looks like. 
So you have the door coming into the four-room house, and the very first part was a broad room that would generally be reserved for your animals. So oftentimes, people didn't have like tons and tons of animals. In fact, when you hear about a flock or you see a picture of a flock, generally that could be several families have their sheep and goats made up of one flock, and a shepherd would be overseeing that. But generally, most families had a few animals, and as the night dawned, as a way of protecting the animals from theft, or from the elements, you would bring them inside. And particularly in the wintertime, it would provide heat for the household. And so this first room was generally a stable. And then oftentimes you would have maybe some steps going up and then you'd have these two middle rooms that would be divided with some columns. And then you'd probably have a wall in the back. It depends on how they arrange this four-room house. It's not a huge floor plan. And then some houses had a second story and some houses just had one room off the back. Some of you know the uh, Elisha story with the Shunammite woman. So that might be connected to you for that. Um, But what you have here is that in the morning, you get up and you open the door. And if you've had animals that have been cramped in this small space all night long, what do they want to do? They want to get out. And so when you'd open the door, they would be the first ones to go out. And this is probably what Jephthah has in mind, that one of his choice animals that would be protected during the night would be the very thing that he would offer as a burnt offering. Now, some people say, well, If he's head of the people, he's probably got some wealth at this point, which just offering just one animal, regardless of how valuable it was, wouldn't be that all of an expensive gift, especially when he's asked for victory over the Ammonites. Uh, It'd almost be kind of like the equivalent of saying, God, if you help me win the lottery, I'll give some back to you. And you win the lottery and you get $5 million and you give God $1,000 back. Right? So like, that doesn't seem like a very big number. So some have wondered, well, how wealthy is he at this point? Like how much time has transpired since he was brought back from Tov? Are we talking like six months? Or are we talking like six days before he goes off to war? And if it's a short period of time, maybe he doesn't have much wealth yet. Uh, and, and maybe it is just an animal he has in mind. Maybe his household's a little bit bigger and maybe he thinks a slave is gonna come out. The point is he's not expecting the one who comes out through the door, his daughter. Now, you go, well, certainly he's going to change the vow. I mean, you can break a vow. I mean, if your daughter comes out and you're expecting an animal, well, let's see what Jephthah does. Notice with me, verse end of 34 again, she was an only child except for her. He had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites, but grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. That's the story. That's what we get. And if you're a pastor who's going to be teaching this passage, you get to the end and you go, huh, good luck preaching that one. 
right? I mean, you sit there and you go, what a really horrible, crappy story this is. Like, how could someone do this? Just a few days ago, my family and I were celebrating New Year's Eve with some friends and all of our kids were running around and uh, apparently they got their hands on some New Year's Eve hats and some fake mustaches. And I came into one of the rooms and I found my baby girl sitting there looking like this. This is Araya. She's six years old. She's my only daughter. And this little girl lights up my life. And as I read this story, and I think about my daughter, I can't fathom doing to her what Jephthah did to his. By the way, his daughter was probably 10, 12, maybe 14 years old at the oldest when he sacrificed her as a burnt offering on an altar. And by the way, maybe some of you have heard the thought that uh, he didn't go through with it, that he sent her off to the temple where she served the rest of her life. Uh, If you've heard that tradition, that's a tradition that began 2,500 years after the story took place. It's a tradition that began in the medieval period. This word burnt offering, that it says that he will sacrifice her as a burnt offering, that phrase, which is actually a word in Hebrew, shows up more than 250 times in the Older Testament, and every single time it's literal. For whatever reason, whether it was superstition or a sick piety, Jephthah does the unthinkable. And by the way, uh, other nations did this. In fact, we even know of Israelite kings who did this. And it was absolutely reprehensible to God. Multiple times in the text, God said, you will never sacrifice your kids. Other gods may require that, but I am a God who would never require something so depraved. And he sacrificed his daughter on an altar. It makes you wonder why this story was recorded, doesn't it? Many times why people say, this is why I don't like the Bible. One of the things that I find fascinating about the Jephthah narrative is this. Uh, There are 12 judges in the book of Judges. Uh, Jephthah has the third longest narrative behind Samson and Gideon. And yet of those 12 judges, Jephthah rules the least amount of time. And the Bible dedicates more than two full chapters to his story, predominantly the story that we looked at this morning. And that alone tells us this story is really, really significant. But how in the world do you figure significance in the midst of such a messed up story? Well, the text helps us to see it. See, if we look at the judge that ruled on either side of Jephthah. Just before Jephthah, we have a guy by the name of Yair. After Jephthah, we have a guy by the name of Ibzin. 
And the text tells us that Yair had 30 sons. That Ibsen had 30 sons and 30 daughters because these guys were fertile and they kept busy. All right? The text is helping you to see the glaring discrepancy between 30 sons, 30 sons and 30 daughters with Jephthah in the middle here. He has one daughter. And what's more, when the text introduces her, notice what it says. She was an only child. And just in case you didn't understand what that meant, except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. The writer goes further out of their way to help us see this is his only child, not just a daughter, not just a child, but his only child. And in the ancient world, if land and family are the two most important things, you protect them at all cost. And for Jephthah, Jephthah takes his daughter and he burns her on an altar. Now he didn't have a son But through her, he could still pass along the inheritance stream. His family line could still continue with her. And yet, Jephthah sacrifices her. If I had to summarize this entire story into one statement, that I believe that the significance of why this story was told, I would just simply put it this way that Jephthah sacrificed his future on the altar of the present. That Jephthah wanted something so bad right now, he was willing to do anything to get it. It was all about the present. It's all about right now. It's about this thing that I want to get, that I want to accomplish, I want to achieve. And as a result of that, he was willing to sacrifice his future on the altar of the present. Back in the 1970s, there was a guy by the name of Merkin who did this very fascinating study. And he went to these elite runners and he said, if I could give you a pill that you would take one time and as a result of you taking that pill, you would win an Olympic gold medal, but you would die within a year of doing so, how many of you would take the pill? The results came in and a sociologist by the name of Goldman with which the Goldman Dilemma that I'm going to talk to you about next is named after, decided to go a little bit further with this study. And in the 80s and 90s, went to elite athletes and said, if I were to give you a pill that you would take one time and over the next five years, you would win everything that you enter into, but it would kill you at the end of those five years, how many of you would take it? And the results from both studies were exactly the same. And the results were this, that over 50% said they would take the pill. Yeah, that's what I thought the first time I read that. I go, what kind of people, you know, is this? Who are these people that they would respond this way? And then it got me thinking, How often are we 
those people? How often do we sacrifice our future on the altar of the present? Think about how we spend our money. About what we buy. What we pay for. What we write checks for. And some of you are in here going, I've never written a check in my life. What are you talking about? Uh, For those of you who rack up the credit card debt, because you just gotta have that thing right now. And we often find ourselves saying, just one more purchase. Just, I just gotta get this one more thing and I'll be set for a while. And then that turns into another purchase and it turns into another purchase. And we find that, that our budget's tight if we even have a budget. And all of a sudden we begin to realize the effects of credit card debt and paying for things that we don't need and how it cripples our future because we become enslaved to creditors. Is this you? Because the question we're all asking this morning is, are you sacrificing your future on the altar of the present? Maybe for you it's finances. Uh, Maybe for some of you, it's centered around your work. That maybe you are trying to create a future for your family, that there's something that, that you want your family to have that you never had. Or maybe it's something that you did have growing up and you want to give your family as well. And so you have really good intentions of working the kind of hours that you do, doing the kind of work that you do that demands whatever it demands. And all along, you're thinking, I'm doing something for my family, like I'm creating a future for my family. And you have positive intentions, but there might be negative results. So maybe we could even just think about it this way, that there's a blurred line between making a future for your family and sacrificing your family's future. How many people do you know that have set out with good intentions to create a future for their family, but in the end end up sacrificing their family's future? They sacrifice the relationship they have with their kids because by the time they have made that money, by the time that they have achieved and accomplished that thing, by the time they have been able to purchase that thing, their kids don't want anything to do with them because they were never there while they were growing up. And many men and many women have been met with the reality of just how blurred that line is. That's something we all have to wrestle with when we do what we do. Are you sacrificing your future on the altar of the present? Or think about for those of you who are in a a dating relationship right now, What kind of decisions are you making? Are you thinking of the future? Are you thinking about how does my act today affect my future? A couple years ago, I read this really great book by Craig Rochelle called Weird. And in it, he talks about dating relationships. And I really appreciated this quote. It's a very, very thought-provoking quote. And this is what the quote said. 
The vast majority of people today cross the line of sexual sin long before they're married. I call it premarital adultery because when you commit sexual sin today, you're cheating on the person you're going to marry later. By choosing to live outside of God's standards today, you're conditioning yourself to be even more susceptible to failure later. Is there any way in which you have cast off restraint? That you've compromised values, that you're doing things that you said, I will never do before I'm married. Are you sacrificing your future on the altar of the present? Well, in this book, Weird, Groeschel not only talks about dating relationships, he also talks about marriage as well. And he gives one of the most alarming stats I think I have ever read. And this is quoted in Weird as well. This is what he writes. According to the Journal of Psychology and Christianity, up to 65% of husbands and 55% of wives will commit adultery by the age of 40. Friends, that's astounding. Is there anything you're doing in your relationships? That you're sacrificing your future on this altar, on an altar of the present. Think about what we eat. Think about what we drink, what we consume. Think about how we exercise or lack thereof. How much we sleep we get or we don't get. What the long-term health effects there are. I mean, even something as simple as stretching. <laughs> A few years back, I remember returning from, it was either one of the Israel trips or Turkey trips, and I got home and my wife handed me an envelope and she said, I got you a gift. I opened it up and it was for a full body massage with a professional masseuse. Listen, if you've never had a full body massage, this is like bucket list, people. Some of you would go, this is like a monthly bucket list, and I would be with you in that camp. It was heavenly. And this was a wonderful gal, a wonderful gal. She asked me about my story and what I've been up to and why I was so sore in the calves. And I told her what I just got done doing. And she prayed with me at the end of our session. It was just really meaningful. And then as I was getting ready to leave, she said to me, she goes, uh, hey, how often do you stretch? And I said, well, I... I stretch almost every day. I mean, I, I try to work out five, six times a week and I always stretch before and after. And she said, uh, how long do you normally stretch for? And I said, uh, not very long. I've never really been Gumby-like, so I get a little bit frustrated and just quit after I start. And then as I was walking away, she said this line that I'll never forget. She said, Brad, your youthfulness will remain in the flexibility of your body. She basically said, listen, uh, whether or not you make that decision to become more flexible now is going to have long-range effects on your health. You will be less susceptible to injury later on if you're taking care of business now. It's pretty good advice, isn't it? Is there anything that you are Sacrificing your future with what's on your altar? What have you been short-sighted with? 
and haven't looked at the long-range effects. This past week, I finished reading a book, a great book, called Waiting on God uh, by a guy by the name of Wayne Stiles. And he wrote this book around the life of Joseph. It's the first book that I've read that's very similar to what I did with Samson and Make Your Mark with having a certain biblical character and a storyline run the spine of your book and then be branching out and looking at all these different topics and issues that arise out of the storyline. And so I was just riveted by this and appreciate Wayne's work so much. And it's the best book I've ever read on Joseph. Uh, but one of the things I really appreciate about Wayne is he's got these phenomenal stories and metaphors. I mean, it's like one gem of a metaphor after another. And he, he told this story about how when he was 13 years old, he ended up getting glasses because his eyesight was bad. Uh, and shortly after he had glasses, he got contacts. And he said now after three decades, he's run into a problem where he can still see afar, but he can't see up close. And he said, I've had contacts for so long that I don't want to tug around glasses just so I can read. And the guy reads like 50 books a year. So he's always reading. And he says, I don't want my glasses. Uh, and he says, and I'm not quite ready to take the step into bifocals yet. So he said, I was looking for a solution. So he said, I had this conversation with my optometrist. And I said, hey, here's my dilemma. And the optometrist says, I've got an idea. And Wayne goes, what's that? He goes, well, let's do a, one prescription for your one eye with your contact. And we'll do a different prescription for your contact for your other eye. And that way, one eye will help you read up close and the other eye will help you off in the distance. And Wayne's response was, isn't that gonna kind of make things blurry? And the doctor goes, yep, at first. And then your eyes will adjust and they'll know when to think near and when to look far. And Wayne took that and he said, uh, this is true of our lives, of our lives here and our lives to come in heaven that we have to have this two perspective. We have to see life with both eyes. And I thought that's a fabulous illustration. And it holds true for what we're talking about today, meaning our present here in this life as well as our future here in this life. Is that for many of us, we can get so caught up about being in the future that we're never really present. We get into conversations and the person in front of us is talking and we're nodding and saying yes, but we're not really listening. We're kind of straying around to the rest of the room. Who else can I talk to? We're just really not present. And for some of us, we're like Jephetha, where we're so short-sighted, all we see is the here and now. We want certain things. We want them badly. And we don't take into consideration what implications they are for the future. Friends, we need to see with both eyes. And this is a very timely thing to think about this because this is the new year where a new page has been turned and many of you start putting forth goals and resolutions around certain things and generally we make goals around those things that we just know we need to improve upon. That we need to make changes in our lives. This is a time where we're thinking about change and how we can make changes in our lives. And my hope today is that in some way, shape, or form that the Holy Spirit has spoken to you and helped you to see what is on this altar for you. And that as you walk into this new year, that you would be able to make changes, that you'd begin to make changes to help you live differently now so that the future will also look very differently to you when you get there. Friends, we don't want to be people who sacrifice our future on the altar of the present. That the God we serve is a God 
who loves it when we take a good hard look at our lives, confess the areas that we haven't gotten right, and plead with God to help us make the changes we need to make so that our story doesn't end up as miserable and as horrific as Jephthah's. We have the opportunity to make changes today. It's never too late to make a change. It's never too late to ask for forgiveness. The grace of God is there and the grace of God is there in abundance. And God just says, open up your arms. Let me pour it into you and let's start making the changes so that we don't get caught on the altar of the present. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the privilege it's been for us to enter into this story today, a story that at first read is horrific and awful, and we wonder why in the world it's there. And after a hundred reads, it's still horrific and awful, but we understand why it's there. It's there to instruct us. It's there to wake us up to the many ways that we're sacrificing our future on the altar of the present so that, God, we can make changes today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would continue to work in all of our hearts, that we would be able to identify at least one thing that we need to work on in this new year and that we would not attack this thing alone, that we would bring others into this, that we would take this before you, God, in prayer daily to ask for your help and your strength to enable us to make the change that we need to make. And that, God, in all of this, may we experience the joy of repentance. May we just experience the joy of your grace that is there for abundant taking. God, we don't want to take it for granted. We don't want to abuse it. We just want to be cognizant of the fact that you're with us in it. May we be reminded of that this morning and this day and the rest of this week and the rest of 2016. Holy Spirit, give us the strength to do what we need to do. For it's in your name we pray. Everybody said... Amen, amen. Why don't you stand and let's close with a word of blessing, shall we? If you're a guest here today, we are so grateful that you chose to join us. We have an area right out the doors next to the information desk where we'd love to connect with you, answer any questions you might have, just have a chance to meet you, hear a bit of your story, or you just have to can you just say hi. It doesn't have to be very long. As always, we have people up front that'll be wearing orange tags. I'll be up front. Other pastors will be up front. If you want prayer, if you just want to talk about anything, whether it has anything to do with today or not, and if you feel like you'd rather have a more tucked in private area for prayer with someone, you can go out to the doors and to the right look for the sign and there's a little room off the lobby and we'd love to be able to pray with you there. My friends and family, as you leave here today and as you continue to journey into 2016, may you do so not sacrificing your future on the altar of the present. And whatever the Holy Spirit may have prodded or probed in you today, may you take that seriously May you take steps in the direction of making that change. May you know the forgiveness, love, mercy, and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may you confidently enter into a new tomorrow. Grace and peace be with all of you. And we look forward to seeing you next Sunday for Water's Edge. Take care. Have a great week.